Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. I'm Vince Leo. I'm the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. You can read anytime. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out the link to my other podcast. It's mostly been dormant the last couple of months, but I do have a lot of reviews there for films covering over the last five years, and you can check out the link to that it's called the Quipster Film Review Podcast. Find it at quipster.net. Today I'm going to be getting into the first part of a three-part series looking at films from the 1980s that feature alien parasites. I'm sure there are quite a few you can think of for your own, but today, because I just covered two Revenge of the Nerds films, we're going to be looking at one film featuring alien parasites that features fraternities and sororities kind of keeping in that theme although this is definitely a very different kind of film though it does feature nerds in some respects the film i'm talking about today is from 1986 and it is called night of the creeps a very popular film among some cult movie fanatics from the 1980s night of the creeps is an r-rated film it does have violence gore scary images nudity and language the runtime is well Depending on which cut you watch, it's an hour and 28 minutes, a couple minutes more for the so-called director's cut, which I'll talk about later in this review. Jason Lively, Steve Marshall, Tom Atkins, Jill Whitlow, and Alan Kaiser are the cast. Fred Decker directs as well as contributes the screenplay. Now, if you know that name Fred Decker, you know you probably have seen The Monster Squad or RoboCop 3. He also has written a few other notable films. But this represents his first effort as both a writer and director, at least in full. Decker was a lifelong lover of movies. He developed that love. He was a kid growing up with his artist father in San Rafael, California. His father was a film buff, and he would regularly watch with his son black and white movies whenever they appeared on TV, or they would head to see more contemporary early 1970s feature films at the nearby drive-in, James Bond flicks, old creature features as well. At the age of 12, Decker got his first camera, an 8mm, and that sparked a very fun hobby of making his own short films. By the age of 16, Decker went to the movies and he saw Jaws, and that's when he was really blown away by filmmaking. This was a movie that was utterly terrifying, and yet it still was hysterically funny. And it also still maintained a very strong emotional core throughout. Decker knew at that moment what he wanted to do with the rest of his life. He wanted to make films just like Steven Spielberg. Now, Decker, who grew up reading a lot of pulpy cult magazines like Famous Monsters of Filmland and others of that ilk, he wanted to make movies that Kids could see and then remember their whole lives, just like he did when he was a kid. Movies that were scary, that were funny, that were romantic and adventurous, many of them all at the same time. So when it came time for college, Decker was accepted by both of the universities he applied to, USC and UCLA. But somehow, despite all of his dreams and aspirations, he was rejected by both film school programs. He still decided to go there, though, thinking that he could spend a couple of years as an English major at UCLA. He went to UCLA because he thought that's where the attractive women were in their English department. If anything, he would break into filmmaking, perhaps as a writer, through writing scripts. Despite women everywhere at UCLA, Decker still was a hopeless romantic during this time. He was too shy to approach 
any of the women, but he still loved movies, so much so that he hung out still with the film school crowd, even though he was not among them. And he even made some small films of his own to make a few extra bucks, including a micro-budget parody of Slasher Fix for this sorority that involved a homicidal maniac coming after them. And Decker, indeed, sometime later, he did break into the film business by writing scripts. One of his early scripts, it was a never-produced science fiction adventure concept about an astronaut and his near-death experience called The Forever Factor. The Forever Factor got Decker an agent. That agent gave that script to a director named Steve Miner. Steve Miner, known for the uh, the Friday the 13th sequels, at least a couple of them. Miner took a liking to Decker's writing, so he decided to take the young lad, because he was still in his early 20s, under his wing. In fact, Miner decided to use Decker for a project that he was working on, starting in 1983, just after he had made Friday the 13th Part 3 in 3D, to remake the original Japanese film Godzilla, King of the Monsters for 20th Century Fox. Decker's script was entitled Godzilla, King of the Monsters 3D. It was written to be in the witty and entertainment-oriented tradition of filmmakers like George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. Very wide appeal. However, after writing six drafts covering the next two years of his life, Fox deemed Decker's concepts as too expensive, and they decided to pull the plug. Decker then began writing other scripts, One was a James Bond homage for young adults called Teen Agent. That was written with Anthony Michael Hall in mind. It quickly sold, but then another writer rewrote it, and then it morphed eventually over several years into the 1991 Richard Grieco flick called If Looks Could Kill, although it was released as Teen Agent in other parts of the world. But what made Decker most cynical after all of this about the business of Hollywood was when he told his old friend and former college roommate named Ethan Wiley about this idea that he had for something that he could direct, a micro-budget, black-and-white, Polanski-esque haunted house film that he could make entirely within his parents' Victorian house in San Rafael. This would be his first break into directing films, he thought. Wiley, he was a Hollywood special effects artist. He was looking for something that he could write that would sell. He wanted to break into screenwriting. He got Decker to agree to let him write the first draft because Decker was involved with some bigger projects and didn't have a lot of time. The script was written very quickly by Wiley. It was very different in tone than what Decker wanted. It took more of a Mad Magazine parody approach, whereas his was a little bit more grounded and serious. Now, Decker had a hard time saying no to his friend, especially since he went ahead and spent so much time on it. So he saw a professional opinion. He showed Wiley's script to his friend, Steve Miner. To Decker's surprise, Miner immediately took a liking to the Wiley version. And after consulting with producer Sean Cunningham, they decided that they wanted to go ahead and move forward, making Wiley's version into a film, and that would be released as House. Now, Decker was bitterly disappointed that his pet project was not only taken away from him, but House became a pretty big hit film, and he was not the director. This was going to be his first break. It became the most lucrative movie New World Pictures had made up to that point. So he was discouraged, and then he became even more so when Decker's name was one of the ones that was talked about as a possibility to write the sequel to 1979's Alien. He would lose that out to James Cameron. However, his idea on how to top the chestburster scene from Alien would get recycled for what would become his next screenplay. 
And that next screenplay would be this conglomeration of all kinds of ideas from low-budget flicks that were proven successes. He felt that he could break into Hollywood if he made a B-movie that would stick to the formula of other B-movies of the past. Gorgeous girls in states of undress, nerdy guys looking to score with them, and zombies and aliens and all kinds of things, including a lot of comedy. That comedy was necessary in case audiences didn't find it scary. They could still have a good time viewing it as kind of a lighthearted spoof of sorts. Decker here took a kitchen sink approach to B-movie homage, this B-movie to end all B-movies. It would just have everything that he enjoyed about B-movies in it. Even though he wanted success, Decker did vow not to spend a lot of time on this script because he felt he would be disappointed if he spent a year on it and then it didn't work out. So he told himself that he had to complete it within a week or he would just chuck it out. After seven days, he started his ideas with the notion of this cynical, hard-boiled detective from the film noir era who has really just seen it all. He spouts the catchphrase, almost sarcastically, thrill me. This detective then comes across a case with all the things that Decker liked to see in those schlocky but imaginative B-movies that he enjoyed growing up. Alien invasion flicks from the 50s, beach party comedies from the 60s, a lot of zombie movies, especially George Romero's from the 1970s teen films from the 1980s, all of this placed on the 1940s detective story and subconsciously more modern comedy sensibilities like National Lampoon's Animal House or the films of John Hughes. Decker titled it The Creeps, and that was initially meant to denote the feeling that he got while watching scary movies. He later reduced that title simply to Creeps, And when he wrote this script, he was tired of the notion that scripts had to be dry and boring. So he made his script for Creeps very fun to read. He spiced up a lot of extra expository descriptions of the characters and the situations. He wanted to paint the image in the mind of the reader. He would set up a lot of scenes. He would add story elements not introduced in the dialogue. It felt more like a script, almost like a narrative in script form. The image that he kept in his mind for the tone of his story was one of a pretty young woman in a formal gown holding a flamethrower, and she was standing next to a dapper young man in a tuxedo holding a shotgun. That actually does take place in the film, and it also was one of the main posters. Now, for the main characters of the story, Decker took these characters that he had already created from this short story that he once wrote about a lovelorn college freshman, just like he was, and his disabled best friend. That freshman was trying to find love, much to no avail. Now, these characters, now named in his script Chris Romero and J.C. Hooper, they were a couple of nerdy college freshman fraternity pledges who have to steal a corpse as part of their initiation. So they accidentally end up releasing this small army of these brain leeches. These leeches are jettisoned from an alien spacecraft back in the 1950s, and they lay dormant in this cryogenic cadaver that they find in the university's research facility. But now that releases these leeches. They jump into the mouths to any humans that they can find, and they proceed to consume their brains, their minds. They control their bodies like zombies, and they only have one mission, and that's to kill and infest the bodies of any others they can find. Now, although Decker committed to making creeps in seven days, it actually took about three weeks. He didn't give up after seven days, but he didn't personally care about creeps or whether he 
ever sold it. He felt it was kind of a stupid idea. Nobody was likely to want to make this movie. And it served more of an exercise in writing quickly for himself, kind of to get the rust off of his creative talent. He felt energized enough to script more serious efforts now, although he still handed off that script to his agent to shop around. He figured it was a long shot, so he told his agent that he'd only sell the creeps on condition that he also be the person who would direct it. Tell those studios, take it or leave it, he was directing it if they wanted to make it into a feature film. Now, knowing few, if any, studios were going to blindly hand over directorial duties to this untested 26-year-old with no formal film school experience, Decker decided to show off some of his directorial talent. He was going to create a showreel of sorts. He conceived of this comical 25-minute short 16-millimeter film called Baton. This was going to be a time travel film that pushed its main character into different times so he could show off multiple genres and his skill directing those genres. However, after three days of shooting and $5,000 spent, Decker ran out of money, so he shelved it. Now, Decker's agent found this promising young producer named Charles Gordon that would give the Creeps script a look. And after reading it, Gordon immediately contacted Jeff Zagansky, who at that time was the head of TriStar Pictures, and urged him to read it. He thought he would like it. Zagansky, though, really liked it, but because of the condition of letting Decker actually direct this film, he wanted further proof of Decker's directorial skills. So Decker slapped together whatever he had on Baton at the time, the five minutes or so, and he laid a temp music track over it, and then he sent a copy over to Sagansky. Now, Sagansky loved this script enough that he was willing to take a gamble here on Decker to direct this script. He even gave him an impressive $6 million budget to make it done. Due to not wanting the film to be confused with Creepshow, TriStar asked him to retitle Creeps with a C to Creeps with a K before they decided to settle on Night of the Creeps, initially with a K and then back to a C, as an homage of sorts to Night of the Living Dead. If anything, at least it would reside next to Night of the Living Dead at the video store. Now, as far as the casting, Jason Lively, he's also known as Rusty Griswold to some people in European vacation. He also is known today to some people for being the half-brother of actress Blake Lively. Jason Lively came in to read for the part initially of JC, but he impressed Decker so much that he chose to give him the lead role, Chris Romero, instead. Now, Decker says he based the character of Chris Romero after himself at that age. He was a geeky kid into comics and films. He wished he could play the action hero and get the girl, and he felt that Lively had all of the qualities that he himself had. As for JC, he decided to cast somebody with more smart, alecky appeal, Steve Marshall. Now, Jill Whitlow filled in for the love interest in the later badass babe role of Cynthia Cronenberg. The actors, during their time on the set, became great friends. They partied at Fraternity Row as much as they could when they were not filming, and Lively and Whitlow supposedly had some romantic dalliances both on and off the screen. They teamed up together for another movie right afterward called Ghost Chase, also known as Hollywood Monster. The actors all remain great friends to this day. Now, Whitlow says, you know, this was not really a romance in interviews. They were more like brother and sister, and she had a crush on Steve Marshall. By the way, many viewers read into the Chris and JC relationship, the two main males in this film, the BFFs, as having an underlying gay subtext. Definitely something that I read into it as well, but Decker, he does encourage people to read into that if they so choose, but he did not intend this, he says, at the time. Now, also starring, and I'd be remiss to not mention, is scene-stealer Tom Atkins. 
Atkins, a character actor, a veteran of a lot of horror films, including a couple of John Carpenter flicks like The Fog and Escape from New York. He was also in Halloween 3, as well as Creepshow. He plays here the town's hard-nosed but slightly cracked, disgruntled cop, the cynical Detective Cameron. Cameron has seen horrific events before, nearly three decades in the past when his ex-girlfriend had been viciously murdered by an axe-wielding psycho. Now, Deckard did not necessarily envision Atkins in the role initially, thinking that he might get Hal Holbrook to hold down that role. Blue Gulliger actually came in to audition, but he felt that that actor didn't have the right quality, although he was an excellent actor. Decker, though, was a fan of Tom Atkins' prior work, and Atkins won the role outright after he gave a very impressive test screening. Decker wrote the character to be very tongue-in-cheek, and Atkins completely understood that and performed as such. And Cameron, the character, carried such an important role in the film, and Atkins gave that character such gravitas that he needed in order to be both funny and imposing at the same time. Decker now calls Atkins casting the smartest decision that he made on the entire film. And by the way, Decker actually named the character, obviously, after James Cameron, but he initially, in his first draft, called that character Detective Shane Black. That was based on his friend at UCLA and fellow screenwriter, but he renamed the characters to only those directors who broke into the business making B-movies as an homage. Now, in addition to his writing and directing, Decker happens to also be a gifted artist because his parents were artists. He, He used sketches to convey exactly what he wanted to his technical team. The scenes set in the 1950s are in black and white, like many movies that were made back then. The actors, older than the parts they portray, and the acting is intentionally hammy because that's how the movies back in the 1950s were. And Decker came up with the look of the slugs with a simple drawing that he then gave to makeup effects guru David B. Miller, who did work on A Nightmare on Elm Street, as well as the similarly titled Night of the Comet, which I also get confused with this film. That also had zombies, by the way. David Stipe's productions handled the visual effects. They had also worked on Creepshow as well as V the Final Battle. Some of the movement of the slug-like creeps were done with monofilament, like fishing line, so you couldn't really see the threads, as well as some remote control cars and some stop-motion animation. Decker says, by the way, to some people who think that this is very much a ripoff of David Cronenberg's 1975 film called Shivers, he says the similarities are coincidental because he had not seen that film at the time he was making this movie. But he does pay homage to Cronenberg in other respects. Obviously, the name Cynthia Cronenberg is that homage. To save time, the effects crew were the ones who played a lot of the zombies. Instead of actors or stunt personnel, they could be made up in their time, and they could participate also as extras like frat boys and the like. Now, when Decker turned in his first cut of Night of the Creeps, it ran a lengthy two hours and 20 minutes. Obviously, that was not going to work. The executives at TriStar felt perplexed about what they saw. They felt there was not nearly enough action, not enough scares, and the ending seemed very impotent. They requested more blood and more horror and more action. So Decker and his editing team, they got to work. They chopped out nearly 40 minutes and they tried to clean up the pacing. It was better, but TriStar still felt that it lacked something. So an early test screening in front of an actual audience met with disastrous results, particularly by the final scene. Decker blames here unfinished effects for the finale for the reason that it didn't resonate with the audiences. TriStar, though, instead of waiting for the effects to be completed and show another test screening, ordered Decker to immediately fix the problems and change the ending 
to a more popular 80s trope, a cheap shock scare at the end. Jeff Zagansky ordered two weeks of additional shooting. He wanted Decker to add more horrific elements, more perilous situations, more personal conflicts. So Decker went to work and added some of these things into the final film, including a showdown in the sorority house garden shed sequence for more tension and suspense. For the ending that he had to change, Decker added a cheap scare. He devised it himself, this zombie dog who comes in at the end and ruins the post-battle celebration. Decker, though, disavows this ending. He thought his own ending was the perfect one, so he restored his original ending when the effects work was finally done into television showings when they needed to pad out the runtime to 105 minutes. The director's cut DVD, it's not quite a director's cut because a lot of the compromises that he made are still in there, but he does have the original ending on the DVD and Blu-ray release. And that's where you see a zombie detective Cameron. His head splits open and it unleashes more slugs that make their way into the cemetery. And then we see a spaceship from the beginning of the film still searching for the canister that they lost that started the whole creeps business. Now, when it was finally released, Night of the Creeps proved to be, unfortunately, despite this can't-miss B-movie premise, it was a major box office failure. Now, some say that it's because TriStar didn't really know how to properly market it. Decker speculates that he really pissed off one of the studio heads and they really stopped caring about promoting it. It was limited to about 70 regional theaters, mostly in the western and central states in the United States, not even making $600,000 of that $6 million investment back. And further confusing the marketing, in some markets, the title was not Night of the Creeps at all. It was called Homecoming Night. So people didn't even know what they were seeing there at the theater. In addition to a soft rollout, it was crushed by having too many higher-profile films of this ilk to compete with. The number one movie at the box office at that time was David Cronenberg's The Fly. James Cameron's Aliens was also in its third week of release at that time. And debuting along with Night of the Creeps was a much more high-profile film, Toby Hooper's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. So it really didn't have a chance competing for a lot of the same viewers, especially without a lot of marketing behind it. Notably, by the way, Cronenberg, Cameron, and Hooper are also name-dropped in the film here that pays homage to them. Despite bombing in the United States, Night of the Creeps had some legs in other countries, especially in Germany, where it proved quite popular. Now, some countries had trouble translating the word creeps, so they changed the title to whatever their language is equivalent to Night of the Chills or The Big Night. In some Spanish countries, it was retitled almost completely to Terror Knocks on Your Door. In France, it was called Extra Leeches. And in Finland, the more provocative title, Night of the Sluts. Night of the Creeps, it has gained a cult following, as I mentioned, among B-movie horror aficionados through its many cable and home video showings, and it has pleased many genre lovers who enjoy movies that are chock-full of in-jokes, a multitude of references to prior films in the genre. Characters and places share the names, of course, of those famous directors. You have those monikers like Corman and Cronenberg and Romero and Raimi and Landis and Hooper and Carpenter and a few others. Even Decker's mentor, Steve Miner, has a character, one of the funniest ones in the film, named after him, as well as Friday the 13th director, Sean Cunningham. Both of those men, of course, as I mentioned, worked on the film based on Decker's story idea for House. By the way, Miner did come in and do some second unit directing at Decker's request for Night of the Creeps, basically the preparing for the formal montage where much of the female nudity takes place. 
Now, Decker today says because of the outpouring of love for this film among genre aficionados, he has gone from thinking it was a failure and kind of being embarrassed about it to feeling he's happy with a lot of what he sees in Night of the Creeps. Maybe about 30% of it he thinks is really good, but he feels today still he would do a lot of things differently, especially when it comes to the lingering pacing issues he still feels are there. All he sees are the mistakes that he made as a rookie. Decker says that he was so exuberant about making his first movie here that he let the camera move a little too much and a little too long and he had a hard time cutting things, a lot of elements that he didn't need to keep the story progressing. Despite his own personal critique, Night of the Creeps has grown in popularity to the point where he does feel some pride about it, even if it makes him wince when he watches. Decker does recognize that the film has those flaws but has come to think, actually, it does work for the crowd that he intended it to work for. Now, Night of the Creeps, I feel, is a fun movie for all of those people who enjoy those campy B-movie horror. If you're in that camp, you're likely to get a big kick out of what you see in Night of the Creeps, particularly if you understand all of the other movies that this film pays homage to throughout. Although the movie does lack big-name stars, I think the casting here is spot on. Tom Atkins, in particular, standing out as the old-fashioned burnt-out cop whose dryly humorous and even ironic catchphrases thrill me. Equally quotable one-liners are interspersed throughout, many of them quite droll, and you definitely will be quoting some of these if you've seen this movie enough. I do think that this movie was kind of ahead of its time. It was self-referential before such a thing really was popular as a staple among genre aficionados and films that came out much later like Shaun of the Dead and Zombieland, it definitely has held up well today because this was one of the first consciously meta films that are really more about other movies, more so than about anything that might happen in real life, which a lot of genre aficionados today do appreciate. It may have a limited target audience because of that to the genre fanatics, but I do think that if you do enjoy the works of Roger Corman and John Carpenter and Sam Raimi and George Romero. This is a really satisfying homage that does their legacies proud. So that's why I'm going to give Night of the Creeps three stars out of four. Three stars on my scale means that I do think that this is a worthwhile film if you're into this kind of movie. And if you've liked any of the directors or any of the films that I mentioned during the course of this review this is probably going to be up your alley. If you're not really familiar with any of that, maybe you should start with watching those films first before you give a movie that pays such homage to those films a try. Otherwise, it might seem a little weird. But I do think that if you are game for that, you might come away really loving Night of the Creeps. So three stars out of four is what I give it. Now, in 2007, there was just to get really confusing because Germany was one of the places where Night of the Creeps actually was successful. They created an unofficial, completely in-name only sequel. It really has nothing to do with this, but it was titled at the time Night of the Creeps 2 Zombie Town. It actually just dropped that part of it. It's now called just Zombie Town today, but it does exist there. Many people have been clamoring for a sequel to Night of the Creeps, and Decker says that he's not going to make it unless Tom Atkins is somehow involved. And Tom Atkins says that he, as late here as 2019, just a year ago, he said that he and Decker had been actually discussing making a low-budget version of Night of the Creeps 2 with the original cast featuring a somehow resurrected Detective Cameron, though Decker says he's just as happy leaving the first Night of the Creeps as a one-shot, which he intended it to be. Now, some people have cited James Gunn's Slither 
that came out quite a bit afterward as kind of a ripoff of the premise of Night of the Creeps, but it's completely different in tone. In fact, James Gunn says he had not watched Night of the Creeps when he made Slither, just as Decker says he had not watched Shivers when he made Night of the Creeps. They just happen to be all mining from a lot of the same B-movies. You know, very few have a lot of original ideas, I guess, within this genre. But still, it is very entertaining and very enjoyable. I hope you enjoyed this look at Night of the Creeps. If you have your own thoughts on this, you can write to me. You can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Links to my Twitter feed, my Facebook page, my Instagram. Any of those ways are adequate to get in touch with me whenever you want. As far as what I'm going to be covering next week in this look at alien parasites that have come to Earth and are controlling us like zombies, I'm going to be going into a movie that I think is maybe even more successful at taking this gory horror mixed with comedy premise. It came out a year after Night of the Creeps. It is called The Hidden from 1987, and it'll be on my next episode. So if you haven't seen The Hidden and you don't mind a gory good time, I definitely recommend checking that out before you listen to next week's episode. Anyway, until then, I do thank you so much for listening and joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. 